Welcome to the People of Chattanooga podcast. I'm your host, Luke Swab. Today on the show, I have Ben Vanderhart. Ben is a local musician from his band Telemonster. He also is the owner of the record label titled Yellow Racket Records. Yellow Racket also has a brick and mortar storefront on East Main, which sells turntables and has a collection of over 3,000 pieces of vinyl. We talk about his experience going to school at Covenant College, how Ben used his English skills in the logistics industry, and the story of quitting the safety of a normal job to pursue his passion. Ben is extremely self-aware and insightful. He explains to me where his drive comes from and his take on motivation and discipline, two topics that I'm deeply interested in. Near the end, he gives away his secrets of success, and he doesn't charge a penny for the wisdom. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Ben Vanderhart. Okay, we're recording. I'm here live with Ben Ben Vanderhart. It's early in the morning. How are you doing, Ben? <laughs> good thing we got coffee. I'm, I'm good now. We do have coffee. Yeah, so uh, we were just chatting before I hit the record button. Um, you're from Iowa? Yeah, that's right. Davenport, Iowa. Shout out. Right on the Mississippi River. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How in the world did you get to Chattanooga? Uh, I went to Covenant College back in 2006. My mom went there way back in the 60s. And, um, you know, when I, yeah, when I graduated high school, that was just like the college that worked out. I had my mindset on going out to, uh, university of Southern California and doing film. And, uh, my dad was like, I don't know why you'd want to go to that hellhole." You know, he's like <laughs> that mindset of like, right. West coast is evil. Kind of it's, it's a bad place. You don't want to go there. So, uh, I, I was like not ready to cut ties with my family <laughs> at that point. I was like, all right, I guess I'll go with at that point. a safer bet. Yeah. <laughs> Are you forecasting something no. to else to say? Okay. No, I'm just saying at 18, you know, yeah, I wasn't I ready to like, you know, yeah. I wasn't ready to go full rebel at that point. I gotcha. Did, um, <laughs> side note, did you ever make out in that tower? No, I never did. <laughs> Are the students allowed to go up there? Uh, they weren't at the time. It's been like renovated okay. since I graduated, and now it's kind of like, you know, it's like an observation deck, and you can you can get like a guided tour up there. Yeah. But uh, back when I was at Covenant, like no, you, I think they you could get a pass to go up there like once a year or something. Mm-hmm. And I actually never went. Yeah. <laughs> so I've never been in that tower in my life. Um, what's the what's Covenant like? Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, I have, I have mixed feelings about it. It's, it's a, it's a wonderful place. Um, and I don't necessarily, you know, in retrospect agree with, uh, with everything that the school stands for, but you know, I'm made some of the closest friends of my life and, uh, uh, in my time there. And I also think that the school has done a wonderful job of, um, teaching people to think critically and think independently and form their own opinions, um, and not just be you know, indoctrinated. So well, that's an especially interesting coming from a, a religious school is I went to a, a Christian high school mm-hmm. and um, it was not what you just described as far as teaching people to think critically. And I think that's really important. So that's props to covenant for that. That's a really impressive thing to pull off in the religious um, world. And, and that was my experience. I know there are a lot of people who didn't feel that that way about it. Um, everybody's going to have a different experience there. I think it's impossible to like to cater to everybody where they're at in, in that particular time of life. But, but I did have a positive experience. So. That's cool. Um, what did you study when you were there? English. 
How, that, that was just, I mean, uh, like that was what I was good at. I was I was good at writing when I was in high school, and so I was like, I guess I'll do English because I know I can get good grades. Yeah. <laughs> how was how my sentence structure so far this morning? <laughs> oh, you're rocking and rolling. I uh, I don't you know I don't um, I'm not a big fan of like criticizing people for the way they talk because I'm I'm more on the side of of believing that language does evolve and that it's good to have to have rules and structure, but at the same time, like language is just the way that humans communicate and that will be constantly changing and words that are, that we think are wrong now will be correct in 10 years. Yes. And and so I don't, I don't like to get up on people. The only time I correct people is like my wife was saying the other day, how I, how like if she posts something on her, on her Instagram or something, it's incorrect. I'll send her a private message, but it's like, (laughs) Hey, like just so you know, you know, like I don't, because it's, you know, you're, your, this is your business. This is your brand, right? So there, there are some cases where I am gonna uh, like be a stickler about it, but I don't do it to embarrass people. I just I do it in the context where I would want somebody to tell me if I made a mistake. You I, know what I mean? I but pre- other than that, it's just like you know, just no rules. Just go for it. I appreciate that. Live your life. <laughs> uh, what do you think about the word literally? Literally, I don't. I don't care. You just use it how you want to. I don't. I'm. Yeah. I don't. I don't get stuck up on stuff like that. Good for you. I. <laughs> I used to get stuck up on specifically literally, and then uh, they changed the definition in the in the um, dictionary. Yeah, that's exactly. Recently. You know, it's something that means one thing now. It's ten years. It's going to take on whatever meaning it has been assigned. Yeah. Culturally. Um. So. There's a podcast out there called The History of uh, English Language, and they go through the Lord's Prayer mm-hmm. in um, different in English. And according to this podcast, every 1,000 years, language changes enough so it's unrecognizable. Yes. So they do yes. the Lord's yeah. Prayer because that's a really old text uh, 1,000 years ago, and you can't recognize what they're saying. And then they do it from 500 years ago, and you're like, okay, I get it. I get most of what's going on in there. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. Language is uh, quite a unique phenomenon that just changes. And Yeah. Because you look at, you know, like Middle English, most of us can't understand. And right. Old English is absolutely unintelligible to all of us. Exactly. You know, and you're only talking about like a thousand years. If you if you read English from a thousand years ago, you're you're up a creek. You yeah, know? you can't do it. <laughs> yeah. So what was your plan with uh, with doing the English thing? Were you going to be a teacher? Well, I still had this idea that maybe I was going to try to get into film. With yeah. That, you know, and it was, uh, you know, I had been pitched the angle of like, oh, you can get, you know, Filmmaking is storytelling, and so you have to be a good writer, and that's like an avenue in, into film. So, you know, my um, my senior project was was writing a, a screenplay, and um, and so I still had kind of had that intent, but um, but mu- music was always there for me, and now I find myself, I, you know, I'm nowhere close to doing anything with film except for editing music videos and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I I guess I wasn't. Uh, I don't know exactly how that happened that I, I, I went in, you know, thinking that I was going to do something with writing or with film. Um, but I think one of the beautiful things about Covenant is there was uh, I learned so much about music and there were so many opportunities to collaborate with other musicians and to, you know, practice your hand at songwriting and performing um, that my love for music just grew a lot in my in my time in college. So. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your script? that you wrote yeah, for your senior yeah, yeah. project and and is that sitting on the shelf somewhere or is that out on youtube for us to all look up <laughs> it's like you know it's just like it's in a word document we ne- i never filmed it or anything like that 
Um, but uh, yeah, it was kind of like a film noir sort of Coen Brothers type thing. It was set in Iowa, um, and it was kind of a a crime thriller in the context of like the culture clash between like white Midwesterners and like Native Americans who are like you know on the reservation and like running casinos in the middle of Iowa, mm-hmm. which is a, a real thing. Yeah. So I didn't know a lot about what I was what I was doing, but I, I still I still think it was a fascinating story that you know maybe someday in retirement I'll like you know I'll, I'll, <laughs> you bring it out once you get yeah, famous exactly <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome um, can you tell us more detail I mean this is interesting to me I also grew up in next actually my house that I grew up in was next to a 40 acre Indian reservation and mm-hmm. where I went to college at Central Michigan University was right next to a giant casino Soaring Eagle Casino in Mount Pleasant yeah so I saw some of that. I saw a lot of money from the casino yeah. kind of um, funneled towards uh, Indian Native Americans, you know, yeah. and I went in some of their homes and it's yeah. a different experience than my experience. Yeah. Um, you just want to know more about the story? Yeah. Tell me about yeah, the story. It was the concept was that um, like you know, the, the inciting event was like a, a casino robbery and, uh, this kid and his mentor who was like kind of older, older brother, older friend who works at the casino, um, accidentally run over this guy, like out on dirt roads in the middle of the night. And, uh, the older guy tells him that they have to hide the body. Um, because he can't get pinned for this because he can't go, you know, can't like can't get another mark on his record, as it were. Um, but uh, uh, so it's 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 kind of the story of like hiding uh, hiding a crime. And I don't want to give it away because what, okay. what if I finish? It's about hiding a crime and also like wanting feeling stuck in a place. Um uh, but also, you know, one of the characters is like the owner of the casino who is a very conflicted person because um, like because of that sort of cultural like tension that I think happens when you, you know, you've got a, a group of people like Native Americans whose culture has in many ways been stripped away from them and they're and they're surviving on, you know, uh, something like a casino and having just white people fill the casino every day and uh yeah just kind of the what what, what I, I don't know i i think writing it, i was just a young kid and wanting to know like what is the, what is that like yeah you know what i mean what's it like to be in that kind of place with you know so much like so much everything seems like it's fine but i think there's a lot of like darkness and a lot of stuff that gets swept under the rug in that in in those kind of settings you you have me very intrigued. I would <laughs> I would definitely watch this screenplay for sure. And that does sound uh, Conan Brothers mixed with Fargo. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. I was like, lo- I loved Fargo I in love high Fargo school, too. and and I, and I just felt like the Midwestern landscape, which is where I grew up, has a lot of Gothic elements to it. And I'd been studying Gothic literature in um, uh, in college, and how you know a lot of early Gothic literature used sort of nature and like the barren wildness of the landscape as a character in the story. And there's kind of like a darkness in, in nature, you know, 
And so that was kind of an element that I saw in movies like Fargo. Yeah. Where like, just like the barren wintry wilderness is like, is a character in that movie. Yeah. Right. And it, and it, um, it just kind of serves as a, as a, uh, a wonderful setting for like a, a thriller or a gothic story. So what, what is, um, can you explain a little more of the gothic, uh, literature? I don't know anything about that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, there's a really fascinating um, uh, video on YouTube, which I'd highly recommend, that talks about the history of the word goth. Um, and basically, uh, in the you know in in uh, early like you know medieval period, that you had the Goths and the Visigoths, and they were essentially you know what we think of as barbarians. Um, and then uh, I, I'm going to get my timing off on this, but I, I want to say in the you know. 15, 1600s, um, kind of going into the Renaissance period, they started using the term goth as kind of, um, uh, or gothic to refer to things that were kind of like backward. They weren't like classically beautiful in, 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 in the way that like, you know, the Greeks and the Romans perceived beauty. And, and that the- was very popular in, in the Renaissance. And so gothic referred to like architecture and things that were sort of untamed and, and weren't like classically beautiful. And they were maybe a little more natural and cold and like and, the, and, like the Notre Notre Dame, the Notre Dame yeah, yeah, church. Exactly. And, yeah. Like those cathedrals are often referred to as Gothic because they're a little they unconventional. Like, yeah. Right. They don't look like Greek temples. Mm-hmm. They're very, the very different style of architecture. And then, but that concept was then uh, adopted in like, the late 1700s and the 1800s by authors who, and, and there was the first like Gothic author was named Horace Walpole. And he wrote this book called the castle of Otranto. And he was um, really fascinated with um, kind of medieval times. And so he built this, this, he, this mansion in the countryside in England where he was like, he was putting turrets on top of his house and like trying to make his house look like a castle because he was so fascinated with, um, this like gothic architecture um and so he he wrote this book and it was kind of a it was kind of a, like a haunting a ghost story and um from that sprung all these uh other you know styles of gothic literature that basically revolved around um it's kind of the supernatural and kind of it, it, like the disorder of of the world and and like you know mystery and so then then you had Edgar Allan Poe and folks like this who were writing kind of hor- horror stories and all of that and then and then that went into um what's known as southern gothic literature and you have um uh, like William Faulkner and and he's like writing these horror stories and or in th- and I don't know very discomforting unsettling stories that are set in the south and so much of it revolves around um they're very psychological and 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 um they just kind of deal deal with nature and like supernatural phenomena and and psychological phenomena right that's the yeah. best way that i can explain it and then and then you take that on so then you went from gothic literature to those kind of themes being pulled into popular music in the 80s with like the cure and uh, susie and the banshees and stuff like that and then you had goth kids who were dyeing their hair black and it's like you know straightening it and wearing all black and singing these yeah, you know, songs that are very psychological and very sad. And, and so that's kind of like the, the running theme between all these things. We talk about Gothic architecture and Gothic literature and gods, you know, like hot topic. 
mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's kind of like this fixation on darkness and like, you know, psychological phenomena and things like that. In this screenplay that, that you're still working on. Um, <laughs> One day. Yeah. Were you going to have some gothic music in it or what were you going to do for uh, audio, soundtrack, anything? I, it's funny you mention that because I had a playlist Did you? that I would write with that was like, these are the songs that I envision this movie you, like being used in this movie. Um, and it wasn't quite what you'd expect. I mean, there was, I remember there was a song by the Smiths in there and a song by uh, Sufjan Stevens. Um, and, uh, I think I was even listening to some of the sound soundtrack from Donnie Darko, which is very Gothic in nature. Um, and, and so it was just really, I was just using music to sort of create, um, a mental place, you know, while I was writing, but those, you know, it was, it was a wide variety of of songs that I was using. Yeah. That's pretty cool. You got to finish that up. That's, yeah. <laughs> that like, um, I got an A. <laughs> good for you. It's pretty good. Um, yeah. Did you ever use the degree? Well, here's the funny thing. Um, right, right out of college, I uh, I couldn't, like nobody was interested in my English degree because it was 2010, two years after the recession. The job mm. market wasn't great yet. Uh, we decided to stick around in Chattanooga to have some kind of stability. And, um, and it, it was hard finding a job that had to do with my degree because it's like English, liberal arts, whatever, nobody cares. Um, but I had worked for my dad's moving company every summer for years as a kid, just going on, on the road, riding in trucks, you know, loading stuff in and out of warehouses. And so, uh, that was the only place I found traction was in the logistics industry, which is really big here in Chattanooga. And so I got a job working in a warehouse like 70 hours a week. Uh, as a temp and then I ended up getting a full-time job after about four months of doing that I got a full-time job with Kenco which is based here in Chattanooga uh, in the transportation um, uh, management group and I did that for about three years but eventually in that time I had developed a reputation for being somebody who wrote well and communicated well and was tactful and you know, good at customer service and very, and very creative. And so word got out and I got recruited by the sales and marketing department. And then I was doing like, I was writing proposals day in and day out for the next like five years and creating PowerPoints and and using all the creative skills that I had that like nobody cared about when I graduated from college, but I eventually developed a reputation for in the workplace. So yeah, it worked out. Yeah, it worked out. And then I and then I quit that job and started started a record label in a record store. Let, let's talk about that. Um, <laughs> when did you quit? Uh, it was the fall of 2018. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I uh, I had been there for eight years at that company. I'd been in sales and marketing for five. Oh my gosh, you probably had health insurance and benefits. I, did. I had all kinds of stability. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, it, but you know, it was just one of those things where, um, even though I was using a lot of the skills in my wheelhouse, I wasn't really passionate about the work I was doing. I didn't have a lot of deep conviction about warehousing and transportation and which is understandable. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's a, <laughs> <laughs> I get it's a that. unique, unique set of people who, who get real. I know, I know many having worked in that, in that field for a while, but, yeah. um, but it, you know, I, I had a hard time with it. There wasn't a lot of joy in the work for me. And one day I, um, 
uh, our company had put sent out these employee engagement surveys. And one of the questions was, do you have the opportunity to do what you do best every day? And I was like, no. Uh-uh. And that was like, the, I remember like I already had been thinking like I, I need to hang this up. And that was for me, that was like a very black and white. Yeah, I can't keep doing this anymore. And uh, that kind of bit them in the butt. Yeah, well, you know, on, on, on the it. one hand, they, they, you know, lost a good employee out of it. But on the other hand, you know, I was, you know, my engagement and, and like dedication to the company was slowly kind of slipping. So on, on, on the other hand, it might have done exactly what they needed it to do. That's a good point. So, um, yeah, so I, I left Kenco in the fall of 2018, uh, right as we were releasing my band's first album on the record label. Uh, and, and then I did that full time for um, a few months just to throw myself completely into it and put everything I had into it. And then um, by like the spring, summer of, of the following year, I, I had to start picking up side jobs again to start like you know paying for income so I, I worked um as a farmhand for a little while in north georgia like part-time and then um worked as a janitor at a church like scrubbing toilets and mopping floors and stuff like that and i did that for several months uh and then for the last year while i've you know been starting this record store i've been working for like a, a marketing company like stuffing envelopes and like managing membership for like a professional association usually between the hours of 9 p.m and 4 a.m and uh i just put in my notice at that job this last week so i've been (laughs) limping it along for a while now so you're in a better spot now that you uh are going full-time again with uh, the record label uh, you know i think that um a, a lot of that's related to the uncertainty of covid and like yeah we we all feel like there's a light at the end of the tunnel but i i don't know how long it's really going to take for things to, to to really pick up and um and and so i felt like it you know rather than trying to hire on additional employees to run the store um independently of me which was kind of the original plan that it's better for me to just like lock in and just put all my time in at the store um at least until things blow over and, and business really starts to pick up again. And so that, that was kind of the driving reason for me doing that is just saying, Hey, I'm all in the store is doing well enough that I can hire myself. Um, but then I don't have to worry about trying to hire other employees and, and, um, are you the only trying to keep them around? Are you the only employee at the store right now? Um, for all intents and purposes, yes. I had two employees in December and one of them moved away, uh, to Philadelphia. And then, the other one has been dealing with some medical issues okay. and, and had to um, take several weeks off and is going to slowly start working their way back in. So that within that position, again, it was kind of this decision of like, well, I can go out and try to find new new employees and hire new people and train them all over again and continue working 90 hours a week. Or I can like cut cut the other job loose and just hire myself and um, and try to lock in for a while until things um, improve, you know. So I want to uh, get this straight. You started your record label in 2018, mm-hmm. yeah, um, which is separate of the store, or is? Yeah, it is. There, there are two um, complementary but very different business models. A record label um, 
you know, is a, a company that basically licenses intellectual property. So um, you're basically going out and, and finding artists who are doing great work and then saying, like, hey, I will put some money into releasing this, and in exchange, you'll license the rights uh, to to your music, to those recordings, to to our company for a certain number of years, you know, and and we'll like share in the profits, you know. So in a lot of ways, the record label is kind of like an investment company that's like going and finding stocks that they think are going to take off, and mm-hmm. say, all right, I'm going to invest in this one, and then uh, and then hoping that you'll get a good return on it, and and you're you know sharing the profits with the the original like you know recording artist. Okay. So and then the record store, you just you can sell anybody's records. You know yeah. what I mean? It's just brick and mortar retail and. Yeah. So how many, um, and I know nothing of the music industry. I don't even listen to music really much. Just podcasts. Right? I only listen to podcasts <laughs> and, uh, I'm an M, but that's, <laughs> um, but, uh, anyway, how many, um, artists do you have underneath your record is, and label? And did I even say that the right way? Yes. Yeah. 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 We have, uh, five, if I'm counting right off the top of my head correctly. So we've got, um, a few, uh, local artists here. My band was kind of you know, I'd read these stories about bands who had started their own label just to c- sort of retain creative control and, and do things the way they wanted to do it. So my band, Telemonster, was the the first album that we put out. And then um, a, an old friend of mine, uh, Joel Harris, who I really respected as a writer and, and songwriter, I, I signed him on. Um, and then we have two other uh, artists based here in Chattanooga. El Rocco is one and Summer Dregs. Uh, and then we have an artist based in Lisbon, Portugal, uh, who is uh, Brazilian originally and a fantastic singer-songwriter, uh, and he goes by the name Momo. How did you get that artist? He found us, uh, I think, on Instagram or found our website, sent me an email, and we had some Skype calls. And I mean, I feel r- really fortunate to have been able to sign him because he's incredibly talented and his last album he put out with Universal Music Portugal and decided that he wanted to go small again and, and be uh, with a smaller label. Uh, and so he found us. And, and um, he's, he's signed with another label in Brazil. And so we, have, we distribute his music in the U.S. and Canada. But the label that he's signed with in Brazil also releases music for like Tom Waits and Nick Cave and Vampire Weekend and, you know... Moby, a lot of incredible acts down there. So. Does, does he sing in Portuguese? Some of his music is in Portuguese, some of it's in French, uh, and some of it's in English. So, wow. Yeah. That's cool. Have you met him? Um, I've never met him in person. We've only ever been able to Skype. Yeah. So Man, one day. Um, yeah, I know. This whole, we'll get him here one day. <laughs> this whole traveling internationally thing is kind of tricky right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know... Um, Portugal has been hit really hard by the the pandemic um, because they are their primary industry is tourism. It's a beautiful country with a lot of beautiful history and landmarks, and um, you know they're not an industrial country. Uh, so it's you know things have been really rough there, as he's as he's told me because of travel, uh, you know conflicts and things. So. Now, in your own personal band, um, what what act do you? Ha- play i'm not i I sort of i I do everything uh in 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 my band um not to minimize others contributions but i I mean i i i write the songs for the most part 
um, with their input. And then I, I sing and play guitar and sometimes keys. Um, uh, I record keys more than I play them live. Uh, and then I also work as a producer. Got a, uh, a truck driving up the street right now. <laughs> yeah, big garbage um. truck. <laughs> Um, and so I also started, um, you know, trying my hand at producing, um, in order to be able to record our own records. And and then of course I run the label. And so I do all the management and distribution and promotion and everything like that. So you wear a lot of hats. I do. Yeah. What, what would you say your genre is? Um, it's rock music, but, uh, like some reviewers have called it, um, you know, broke rock or baroque pop orc rock which means orchestral you know um i i find sometimes it's helpful to just say that i love bands like radiohead mm. and uh, sufjan stevens weezer and grizzly bear and pixies built to spill and so you know you'll find a little bit of all those bands in, in my music but i also really love tchaikovsky and so i'm always trying to find ways to like work classical music into what we're doing so that's cool. Do you play? When was the last show you played? Uh, the last show we played was in the Road to Nightfall competition, uh, which I think a lot of folks in Chattanooga will be familiar with. But the Nightfall series is the concert series downtown, you know, where you can go see shows out in the park uh, downtown um, every Friday night. And uh, each year they put on a competition for local bands to play. And so there's like, there's a few rounds, but we, we, you know, we, we went to the final competition. It was like the top five bands, um, all went head to head as it, (laughs) as it were at Songbirds last March. And that was, that was it. Uh, I think that was like the first week of March and then, then they uh, shut down. And then everything shut down like March 13th. Yeah. That was the last time we played. Yeah. That's uh, and Songbirds has since you know closed and uh, I know things have changed a lot since. Then. I had Brian, you know Brian Shannon. I don't. He was um, oh, I can't get this wrong. Like the director or he, I had him on the show, but I for, it's a long time ago. I forgot. But I think he was a director of Songbirds and okay. uh, and yeah, and, and he told me the whole story about Songbirds and yeah, sadly it was going away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm too bad so were you gonna win the i mean did the results come out who won yeah the yeah, yeah. The, the, we didn't win like we were we um we got an opening slot at nightfall basically oh. like there's one the the band who who wins the whole competition will uh get to play like a headlining set and then everybody else who went to the to that top five would get to open for one of the other like touring acts coming through so oh. we were going to get to open for somebody that's cool um but that didn't happen either. And it, it may still, they said, you know, Hey, whenever this comes back around, you know, cause if they, they're not doing the road to nightfall competition this year, as right. far as I know. Um, so we may still get to play nightfall at some, which we, we actually have done in the past. Um, so we may get to play again if it comes back. How, how it, many, how many records do you have out? Uh, we, we've done three. The very first one we did was like a little three song EP right out of college. And then we put out an album in 2012. Uh, and then we were on a long break because um, we were all, you know, advancing in our careers. And we had uh, collectively, we had like eight kids in three years among the band. Oh, wow. And so it was just things were crazy. But, n- but nobody ever said like, hey, guys, I'm on my second kid. I'm out. Like, I'm done. 
so I think everybody was still hoping that we were going to keep playing music in, in some form or fashion. And uh, so we decided to start recording um, because it was, you know, when you have a lot of, when you have kids, when you have a lot of pressures and, and things kind of competing for your time, it's, it's hard to coordinate everybody's schedule to like get together and practice and, and do live shows. But the beauty of recording and modern recording is you can be like, Hey, can you come lay down bass? you know, next Tuesday. And then Dave, can you come play keyboards, you know, Thursday, uh, you know, the following month, you know what I mean? Right. And so we kind of pieced together this album in the middle of all these kind of responsibilities and, and, and things. So and, they, they can come in even by themselves or, or they just meet up with you and do the recording. Yeah. 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 They would come into my studio and, and, you know, you, you know, it's called overdubbing and, and that's how, you know, most things are recorded these, these days is, you know, you lay down your, your, your demo and then you record your drum tracks uh, and then you record your bass and then you record your rhythm instruments and then, you know, and you kind of just Stack build, it. you're stacking everything and you're building uh, from from the ground up. Do you do that in GarageBand? Um, that was how I first started back in college. Uh, more recently, I've been using uh, a program called Reaper, mm-hmm. um, which is just kind of like a f- it's it's a, a little more technical than GarageBand and has a little bit more um, like guts to it. You know, to be able to GarageBand is very user friendly. But like you can't really get into the back end and, and change a lot of things and change signal pads and things. I haven't used it in a long time, but yeah, um, uh, you know. Whereas things like Reaper and Logic and Pro Tools, you know, they're harder to use but also more powerful. Yeah, yeah. It, it seems like recording has gotten easier. Is that that the case? Absolutely, uh, for better or worse. Yeah, uh, you know, <laughs> that's there's, the there's barrier a, to entry is a little too that's easy. That's right. Yeah. So the great thing is that there are there are a lot of really talented artists who can now record for the first time who wouldn't have had access before because it was so expensive or because it was so hard to learn. Um, but then at the same time, you also have really terrible artists who right. have the exact same access. So there's, you, you know, music is very oversaturated right now. It's really hard um, to, to get your music out there and to get it heard because there's so much music on the on you know, out on the market to be consumed. Um, so that's a challenge. But then at the same time, everybody has an opportunity to have their voice heard and listeners also can listen to exactly what they want to listen to. So how, if you're good or even if you're bad, how do you get your music to ears? How do you, uh, differentiate yourself or how do you, I mean, how do you get out there? Um, how do you get noticed? Yeah, th- there's no right or wrong way. Everybody's path is is very different. Some people get noticed with a YouTube video, you know, yeah. that goes viral, and then some people don't get noticed until they've been doing it for like 20 years. And um, what I will say is that um, I think that I, I was a little naive when I first started out about um, how the music industry worked and how how much quality had to do with whether or not your music would get heard. Um, quality is absolutely essential, but just because of like because of the way the music industry is structured, um, it doesn't necessarily reward what's best, but what what makes the most money. And so there's kind of an obsession with branding. Um, inside the music industry, as in many other you know spheres of life, 
Um, and that's something that I sort of am resistant to. I don't like the idea of, of branding myself or, or being anything less than just authentic. Maybe that comes from growing up in the nineties and, and, you know, respecting, you know, bands like Nirvana and Weezer who just like, like these dudes just, they put on whatever they wanted to wear in the morning and then they, but now that is kind of part of their brand, right? You yeah. Know, people took that and were like, oh, like we're going to like grunge is going to be like the new, it's the new brand, you know? And, and like nerd rock is this, is this own brand. Um, but, but, um, so I think you always have to be cautious of whether those kinds of things are happening in the background. Things that may seem very authentic are often, uh, very contrived. Yeah. And, um, uh, so all that is to say, um, there is no right way to get noticed in, in the industry, but it is incredibly hard because there's so much competition and because, uh, branding is such a huge part of it. And, and as a culture, we are obsessed with, with brand, uh, and with image. So, um, in, in the yeah. American music culture or globally, do you think? I, I don't know if I can speak globally, I, but for sure it's true of here. I would just imagine the more and more video is popular, um, the more branding becomes important. Um, yeah. Where do you stand with video? Do you have music videos that go with all your songs? Can you even, as an artist, survive without music videos? How does, how does that work? Um, they are they are definitely pretty important. Um, I think that uh, you know uh, the artist Bjork had a, a really wonderful quote that I'm going to butcher a bit, but um, she said something about seeing music videos as simply a, a means of easing the passage of music into our brains because it's integrating our visual senses with the auditory, and so it's less about like projecting an image or. Um, or, you know, about increasing sales as much as like helping your brain to process the, the music faster and, and like understand it more quickly. Um, so as an artist, I really love that idea. Um, but from a strictly commercial standpoint, yeah, people, uh, people gravitate toward, toward like visuals, like we're visual creatures in a lot of ways. Um, but music is a magical thing that stands on its own and you don't have to have video to make great music. So I, I, I would never want to tell people that like, Oh yeah, you can't make it unless you're doing video because music is inherently valuable as music. You yeah. know what I mean? And I mean, heck we're doing a podcast right now where we're encouraging people to rely on the auditory senses alone to understand meaning and to like to convey information. So I think there's value in that. I, I agree there's value. I wonder where podcasts are going to go in the future, though, because a lot of people listen to their podcasts. Well, they watch them now on YouTube. Yeah. And uh, I want. I think podcasts are still in the very infant stage. It's a relatively new medium. Um, and my kind of prediction is um, you'll have to have a, a YouTube version of your podcast in the future. I think right yeah. now you don't need it, but um, I think it's more helpful if you have it. Yeah. I think that's where it's heading. I don't know. Those are just my off-the-cuff <laughs> thoughts. I'm going to embrace it while you don't have to have video. <laughs> yeah. Do you guys have music videos? Yeah, we do. I don't do videos for all of them. Um, and some, some, more, some are more complex and others are just, like, very simple, you know, like the image of... Uh, you know, a tree kind of swaying in the wind for three minutes while you just think about the music, you know, in some ways like you, you can use a visual, like 
a very simple music video to force people to into the audio. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, sometimes I think you can create a like a very stimulating music video that has a lot of visual stimulation to it. But then sometimes an artist will like take a very simple image and it's almost like they're saying, no, don't, don't worry about the visual. Just listen to the song. I agree. And you can do that with album covers. You can have Mm -hmm. real simple and sometimes a more simple, like bam, just stands out, you know? Uh huh. Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's part of why vinyl is making such a big comeback because I think we are naturally drawn to, um, using all of our senses uh, when we experience things. And um, there is something lost when when you're just uh, streaming something. Um, and uh, and I think people, you know, in my experience at our shop, people love to be there physically flipping through the racks, touching the records. Um, and that's why people listen to vinyl. It's much more convenient to just throw something on, uh, you know, on... Um, you know, on, on to just stream something is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, but, uh, it's not always about convenience, uh, when it comes to how we make our decisions. And sometimes we choose to do things because they're beautiful. And, um, so I think that's why people like to hold albums and put the record on the turntable and watch it spin. It's it, it, that in itself can be kind of a mesmerizing, mesmerizing accompaniment to the music, you know? I have some thoughts on this. Um, one is is vinyl better audio quality yes the first off yes um and i uh the reason for that and i'm not saying that i can always tell a difference even Mm -hmm. but scientifically speaking it is better quality for the same reason that um do you remember when uh when digital cameras first came out yes you could see the little pixels on the screen Mm -hmm. and now you know our hard drives have gotten bigger and our memory cards have gotten bigger and so now those pixels have gotten smaller and smaller and smaller Mm -hmm. and while that was happening digital music was going through the same process where some really early digital recordings sound they're kind of gritty and and abrasive and it's because they, they were limited in terms of the technology and the number of like you know bits that they could use and when you think about the curve of a of a sound wave um in nature it's pretty much truly a curve you know what i mean yeah but when you digitize something if you were to zoom in really close to that curve you're going to see little stair steps because yep. that curve is made of pixels and um and so when people talk about mp3s being compressed and and like lower quality it, the exact same thing is happening there as when you take a you know 3000 by 3000 pixel image and shrink it to 30 by 30 and then all of a sudden the computer is saying okay i'm going to take um these 64 pixels and make them one pixel you know and um and uh and, and so the result is that those little tiny stair steps on the waveform on the audio wave uh, then become much larger stair steps, right? And and the the what the technology providers have to do is figure out how can I reduce it, make the biggest stair steps possible before people find this music unlistenable. Yeah, right. Like, where is that threshold? So what's happening with with analog is you're actually like hearing, you know, a a curved waveform and not a stair stepped waveform. That's a really good explanation. That makes a lot of sense. Now, to keep the analogy going with the photography world, I think um, the cameras have 
surpassed the analog film. Mm. Would would you agree with that, or do you? Th- oh, I don't know. I don't think I could speak to that. As I'm not a professional photographer, well, so <laughs> that just that just comes down to sensor size, basically. So yeah. film, and I'm gonna get this wrong, but I think like a regular film camera. Um, which has the image size the same as a full-frame camera. I think it's somewhere around like 50 megapixel equivalent in the digital world. So if mm. you go over that on, in a digital camera, then you're technically have surpassed. Yeah. Th- you're but maybe th- close, closer to human perception yes. is what we're talking yes, about. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then, but that's just regular film. Then you have medium format, which is much larger and then you have large format so large format i don't think digital cameras have touched yet but the gap is narrowing and human perception um you might not be able to notice and for that same reason recording has also kind of undergone a similar um uh uh, like transformation in terms of acceptance you know where, where you know even the greatest audio engineers in the world are are recording in the box as they say, in which the means that they are using, you know, primarily plugins and, and because they're saying it's pretty damn close. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, and it's not worth all the effort. Uh, there, or, or there is still an exchange between like between quality and convenience Yep. and, um, the amount of like quality that you will gain by giving up this much convenience, it's, you know, it's not worth it to them anymore. Diminishing so, returns, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, th- and you know, our screens have gotten there with the iPhone with the retina screen. Yeah. Like you can't tell any more than that. Now that being said, there are, we, you know, we still use those other mediums as an aesthetic choice. So people use the film, you know, cameras because they look a certain way and recording artists also use tape because it sounds a certain way. Yes. And, and, um, a lot of that may have to do with how comfortable we are with those mediums because we've, we have seen them for so long and there's maybe some nostalgia that's like built into that where we're accustomed to the way that tape sounds and we like the way that tape sounds. Yeah. Know? And I, and film is making a huge comeback. I mean, I have multiple friends who shoot with film. They like the challenge. I think it's because they didn't grow up with it. Mm-hmm. I think it's like this, everything trends come and go, you know, and I, yeah. I grew up with film. I'm a little older and it's pain in the butt and I didn't like it. So I'm stoked on digital. Mm-hmm. But when you're, grow when you're a little younger and you grow up only with digital it's kind of like novelty to like let's what's this film about you know and they kind of like that well there's something really beautiful about limitation yes wonderful things happen when you have limitations and um and it's it's such an expansive theory that you know um creators often talk about what wonderful things happen when you give yourself limitations you say i'm only going to work with like this keyboard or only going to work with this set of sounds, or I have to make something with this guitar. Um, and in the same way, you know, photographers, like you can give them all the tools in the world, but sometimes it's kind of a relief to say, no, you have to make it work with just this. Like I'm going to inside this box. Yeah. You have to be creative inside this box. That's um, so many examples of that. Engineers yeah. are the same way. The, the worst thing you can do to an engineer is say, make something yeah. they need hard, constraints and Mm -hmm. then they can go wild and that's i think this is another uh reason why uh vinyl is making a big comeback because spotify is awesome and that you can listen to anything in the world that you want to right but when there are no constraints it makes it much harder to make decisions and this is true um and i spent several years in sales and marketing uh this is true in retail settings as well that um, you want to give people options so that they feel like they're making choices. If you have two items on the shelf, people don't, they're not going to shop because it's like, right. It's not, 
it's not an enjoyable experience. You're not making a decision. Um, if you get 12 things out there, then you've got some choices and you have to try things on and you have to make a decision. But if you put 3,000 items in front of them, it's overwhelming and they'll turn around and walk away. So there's a threshold at which, um, like, you know, the limitation becomes the reason that you're, that you're selling. There's so, examples yeah. of that everywhere. There's restaurant menus, mm-hmm. prime example. Yeah. I, I get overwhelmed if it's more than like 12 choices, Yeah, you know? And, and, <laughs> um, and then Netflix is the same problem. Like, Hey, let's watch a movie. Yeah. And then for the next 45 minutes, <laughs> you sift through and, stuff and it's looking just for like, something to watch. And it's yeah. just like, start one, yeah. please. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and now it's, you know, I, I have, I was just talking with a friend the other day who talked about how comforting it is that he can go out to his living room and look at his collection of 30 records and pick one. Yeah. You know, um, he, and yeah. And there's, there's comfort in that. That being said, how many records do you have for sale? Oh, uh, probably like 3000. Is that an optimal um, amount? It is for us right now. I mean, we're certainly not the biggest record store in the world. Um, I'd say that people will typically come in and spend anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour and a half, uh, sifting through the records. Um, so again, there's that sweet spot between like having enough options for people and, and not having enough. We have, a um, a, a three-star Google review from somebody who said that, um, we didn't have a very good selection and not nearly enough metal, you know? So it's like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> there's some people who are going to come in and be like, no, this is too small. And then there's some people who are going to come in and, and feel like this, we have exactly the right amount. So what's uh you tur- can't please everybody. What's the turnover rate? How many people come in? They're just uh, record flippers or tire kickers. They, they just go in and then have fun and then leave. Very small, especially right now. You know what so I they're mean? Buy- okay. Oh yeah. Um, I would say we may see that change once the pandemic is over and people are, are um, just going out and about more often. But I would say for the most part, if somebody comes to our store, they come with the intent of buying something, right? Otherwise, they probably wouldn't be leaving their house, you know? <laughs> True. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. So that's good. Uh, what What's an average cost of a record? And uh, I would say average cost is probably... Um, if you look at if you look at our, our like reports, yeah, the average cost is fourteen dollars. But a new record will typically be anywhere from eighteen to thirty five dollars. Um, and but what skews it lower is that uh, you know all, we have all these used records which are not the same price as a used record. And in, in most cases, some of them are more valuable and collectible. Collect, yeah, and will be. <clears throat> here's a good here's a good way to think of it. You've got new records which are anywhere from like 18 to 35 dollars and then you have your high quality new records which are kind of in that same vein uh but the the range for excuse me i meant used records the range for used records is like 25 cents up to 200 dollars, right and so you know you sell a whole bunch of bargain records it's going to pull your average down Mm -hmm. you know um and so that's i would say if you're going to come in buying a record you should expect to spend 20 dollars on a record, but you can also come in and like, I had a dude who probably came in, uh, who came in the other day and he probably walked away with like 40, uh, records and he spent 40 bucks, you know? So, so, so <laughs> these, these, uh, used records, are they not making any more or does sometimes like record labels pro- reproduce some of the more f- classical ones or is there like a limited supply? It's all of those things. Um, you know, uh, 
in vinyl, there is a collector culture, as there are in, in many other, you know, formats and in, in, in arts. Um, so, you know, it's just the kind of, it has to do with how rare something is, you know, if something is like limited edition or if they only did so many pressings and it's out of print, then it becomes more valuable. Um, you know, uh, it's really fascinating. You know, you can look at, um, an artist like Barbara Streisand, who is a wonderful singer, but not that many people listen to Barbara Streisand anymore, but there was a point in time when a lot of people listened to Barbara Streisand. And so there's, a ton of Barbara Streisand records out there, but they don't sell for very much money because the demand isn't very high. And then on, on the other hand, um, you know, you have certain artists who uh, their records are, as an artist, they have held up and people are still listening to them a lot, uh, but they didn't sell as many um, records originally. And so they're like much fewer. So the demand is really high but they're very scarce. And then you also have artists in the middle, like the police or U2, who people still listen to a lot today and love, but they also sold a ton of records back in the day. And so, you know, a near mint copy of Ghost in the Machine might only be $20 right now. Um, whereas like a near mint copy of, um, you know, uh, kind of blue, you know, is probably, you know, going to be, it's going to be much, much, much higher. It's going to be like in the hundreds, you know, what's the most, uh, valuable record you have in the store right now? Um, the most valuable record we have there, there are a few. Um, one of them is a band that I hardly even know. And I'm not even sure I've put the record on yet, but I should. Um, but it's a band called Dixie Dregs and it's one of these, you know, records that, you know, nobody's ever heard of, but you find out that it actually, you know, it has kind of like a cult following and the record was, you know, in short supply. And so now, you know, they're going for like 200 plus on Discogs, right? Oh, cool. Uh, and then there are other kind of oddballs like, um, the, uh, original first pressing of the, um, Dark Knight soundtrack. Uh, I bought from a friend and it turned out that it was extremely valuable. And those also are going for $200 plus on, on Discogs right now. So do, do records since they're analog, you say pressed. So that makes Mm -hmm. me assume how they're made with a press. Mm -hmm. Um, do they, what's their user length? Do they wear out? How long, uh, does the quality stay good? It, uh, it depends on friction based. So it has to wear. Well, it depends on how well you take care of your, uh, records. Mm -hmm. Um, and it depends on the kind of record player that you're using. And one thing that I tell people whenever they come in looking for turntables is that it's extremely important. I think to get a turntable that has a counterweight on the tone arm. And this has Uh, to do with the friction friction, that you're talking about. And a a lot of all in one record players, that's where the turntable and the preamp and the amp and the speakers are all bundled into one unit, kind of like these suitcase models. Um, They can be very cool looking and, and very convenient, but um, often the tone arm, the weight of the tone arm is, is however much the plastic and the metal parts weigh and if it's uh, lighter, then uh, your tone arm will bounce more readily, and you'll and you'll it'll skip easier. And if it's too heavy, it'll dig down into your grooves and carve out your grooves and wear out the record a lot faster. Um, so 
the answer is that if you take good care of your records, you should be able to listen to you know that record in perpetuity. Like I don't know of a record that has been well taken care of and and has like you know worn out so, after. Yeah, it sounds like it has mostly to do with the turntable. It has a lot to do with the turntable, and and a lot of it has to do with storage. storage like make yeah. sure you store your records upright. You lay them flat and stack stuff on them, and they will warp. And then. You can't play it, you know, and, uh, you know, if you um, aren't careful with it, then you can scratch it and, and, and scuff it up and then it's going to it's going to skip. Um, um, and, and cleaning your records is also important, you know, uh, so keeping the keeping the dust off of them. And how do you clean a record? Um, you can get record cleaning, you know, kits. It's like a brush and a solution You because know, a record is made out of PVC. Um, so uh, what is it? Polyvinyl carbonate. What does that stand for? This is the same. It's made out of the same, you know, stuff as as PVC pipes. It's, yeah. it's plastic, um, and so you know, uh, some people. I I I, uh, I watched a, a YouTube video for this guy who's an audiophile, and he made this contraption at home where he could seal the paper label. You know, like there's a thing that clamps on both sides of the records to seal the paper label, and then he sticks this thing in his sink and he washes his records off with with like the you know the sprayer in yeah. his sink and he's using a cleaning solution and everything but uh some people would look at that and be horrified but at the same time it's like well it's just plastic yeah you know it's just plastic um, there's, I, i'm not saying i recommend doing that <laughs> um but essentially that's all you're doing you get these cleaning kits with like a cleaning solution and a brush or we have like a vacuum cleaning record record cleaning machine oh. at the shop and it applies a solution, it scrubs out the grooves with a soft brush, and then it sucks all the solution back out. Do you clean every record you get? Um, only if it uh, enhances the value, you know what I if mean? If it's already, so if, we, if it's a 25 cent record, there's no, right, yeah, yeah there's no it, reason. Yeah, exactly. Um, Do you remember when uh, people would clean CDs and DVDs with toothpaste? I do remember that, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, clean your CDs and DVDs and then fill the holes in your wall, your dorm room yeah. wall. <laughs> is anyone collecting CDs? Is that... It is a thing, and it's, pri- it's primarily a price point thing. So yeah. um, if you are collecting because you want to curate your own collection, um, which is also a thing, we kind of talked about that before, yeah. like the value of limitations. If you're, yeah. if you're still curating a collection, but you don't want to be spending 20 or $25 on records, you can go out and buy that thing on CD for you know, maybe five bucks or less in a lot of cases. So there are, there are still people who are and same, same thing with cassettes. Cassettes are much cheaper. Um, and so they're, uh, and, and easier to replicate. And so especially in like punk music, cassettes are, are really big right now. Interesting. Yeah. I never would have guessed that. Yeah. Now records, it, I remember they had different sizes. Mm-hmm. So what's that all about? Um, well, uh, there's a few different reasons. So you've got, uh, what are known as 78s and those are uh, 10 inches and, uh, the 78 refers to the revolutions per minute. So these are, um, uh, you know, pressed, uh, and recorded, um, and then played back at 78 revolutions per minute. Um, and, and they are, um, like if you go into an antique store and you see all these old blues records and these things are, they're like really heavy they're not durable, you know, like if you tried to bend them, they feels like they'd snap. And those, those are 78s. Um, uh, and then, uh, you, you have traditional records, which, um, are either 33 and a third RPM or 45 RPM. And most turntables have a switch so you can tell it, you know, which speed to play. 
Um, and, uh, and so almost every record, every LP long play that you get off the shelf is going to play at one of those two speeds. Um, and then you also have 45s. And uh, while there are LPs that play at 45 RPMs, when people talk about 45s, they're usually talking about the little seven inch singles. And there's one track on each side. Um, and they have a larger hole in the middle, which is why you got to put in the adapter um, in order to, to, to put it on your turntable. Uh, although the larger hole, I think, makes it fit better in a, in a jukebox, right? It's like designed for jukeboxes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. How much um, money is a decent, average quality uh, turntable? <clears throat> I, I and and you sell them at the store. I do sell turntables at the store. I tell people that they should they should expect to spend at least a hundred dollars on a turntable starting out. Um, Audio Technica makes really great turntables, and and their kind of lowest price point is like a hundred and hundred fifty bucks. Um, and and almost all those turntables. Uh, are just um, a turntable with a built-in preamp. They don't have speakers built in. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I sometimes wonder why, you know, why, why buy an all-in-one turntable that has speakers that yeah. are like the same size as the speakers on your phone? Yeah, um, I agree. I, I think you're kind of limiting. It's You're getting all the tactile experience out of playing vinyl, but you're not getting all of the like audio experience. And I think that just like when you, when you start playing guitar, if you have a really lousy guitar and it's hard to play and you don't enjoy the sounds that you're able to make on it, it can be frustrating and it can be discouraging and, and you might not listen, you might not play guitar as, as much. And so I think um, that's one thing I'd say about turntables is like if you can get a turntable that gives you a really rewarding listening experience so that it makes you want to listen to your records over and over, uh, that's an important thing or else you're just kind of throwing away money. What, what do you recommend for um, speakers? Because that I agree with you 100%. You got to um, find out where your weakest link is. And if you have every, you have good record, good turntable, and then a garbage little bluetooth speaker setup mm -hmm. it's not gonna yeah fill the room what i what i tell people is you know start with the turntable get a high quality turntable even if it's a hundred dollar audio technica um and then you've got your turntable and you've got a a, a decent built-in preamp and then if you're strapped for cash then do something like um a sound bar or you know a, a high quality like Bluetooth speaker is okay because some turntables can can do Bluetooth, but most Bluetooth speakers have an audio input in the back. And if you've got a, a powered speaker like that, then you've got your amp and your speaker built into to one unit. So you've got your preamp and your amp, and your turntable built into one unit, and you've got your amp and your speaker built into one unit. Um, and then over time, you can gradually like continue investing in your system. And you may say, you know what, I'm ready to buy. Uh, some speakers. I'm ready to buy an amp and you're going to split those into two separate units, you know, and then at some point, like our, our setup at the shop, we have a turntable that doesn't have a preamp. And then we have an integrated amplifier, which means the preamp and the amp are built into one. And then we have passive speakers. And so there's so many different variations that, that you can do, but it's just important to know that you need those four elements in your signal chain, your turntable, your preamp, your amp, and your speakers and just know whether whether you've got all the boxes checked, no matter what configuration you're setting up. But um, but like you said, I think that gives you the ability over time to, to to troubleshoot issues. Oh, this is a problem with my preamp. Oh, this is a problem with my amp or my speaker, whatever. 
um, and and be able to to fix just those things. Whereas if you buy a sixty or eighty dollar all in one turntable and something goes wrong with your preamp or one of your speakers blows, it's going to cost you fifty bucks to just to fix it. In which case you should have just you know gone with the turntable, a better quality turntable to begin with. Now, this is probably a stupid question, but uh, can you hook up a subwoofer to this setup? Yeah, you can. Um, it all just depends on the amp or the receiver that you're using. Uh, an amp and a receiver are essentially the same. The only, the only thing that makes a difference is a receiver is um, has a, a radio transmitter in it. It receives radio signals. So um, uh, it just depends on the, the amp or the receiver that you're using. If it has a base output uh, or a sub output, then, yeah, you can hook up a sub. Okay. You know, I, I think it's easy for me to just think about like, did, you know, did your dad have like a home, home audio setup like growing up? Or, like, I didn't home, listen to music. Home, growing up. Yeah. Even like a home theater system <laughs> though. Like was it, you know what I mean? Did you have, was there like a little receiver that would switch between your VCR and your DVD player? I, and your... I have one in my house. I, I yeah. kind of pieced it together myself. Yeah, I, yeah, I have yeah. a projector, a TV, uh, the receiver, HDMI out, uh, five speakers and a sub. Yeah. And, and for me, I just, I, I remember, you know, growing up that you know i have family members who had who had that home theater set yeah. up and so when i was learning about like uh, you know audio signal chains that was the easiest way for me to think about it was like oh like the receiver is powering your speakers and it allows you to switch whatever inputs you want and and so i, I think a lot of people get really confused about about that conversation but if you just think about your home theater system it's like okay <laughs> yeah everyone, everyone can understand that right <laughs> Well, what's uh, what else do you have to tell me? Um, oh boy, I think that uh, if 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 there was like one other thought that that I would impart to listeners, sorry, I got to talk into the microphone. If there's one other thought that I would uh, share with your listeners, um, it's that conviction and and passion for what you're doing in life is so incredibly important, and if you're not uh, if you're not feeling fulfilled by the work that you're doing, um, then you really ought to give that some thought. And I don't want <laughs> there to be like a, you know, uh, a huge like unemployment rate here in the city of Chattanooga. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not encouraging people necessarily to quit their jobs. Are you just trying to but... get employees right now? <laughs> no, <laughs> no I'm saying that, um, there is a lot of hardship that comes with starting your own business and, uh, um, and like striking out on your own and kind of disconnecting from the security blanket of, of the corporate world. Um, but there is a lot of joy in being able to do something that you love. And a lot of people, a lot of people will assume if you're taking a big risk like that, that you're going to fail. Um, and, uh, you won't know unless you actually do it. And I knew with certainty that, a record store that we needed to have another record store in Chattanooga. And I talked with a lot of investors and I, and none of them had the same conviction. None of them believed it. And even when I put the numbers in front of them, Hey, 18 million new records were sold in the U S last year, you know, in Chattanooga, we should be selling about 30,000 records a year. The people of Chattanooga should be buying about 30,000 records of it, you know, but I came in it with that, with a conviction and then I had to find the numbers and they came in it into it with a lack of conviction so that even when I put the numbers in front of them, they still didn't believe it was true. 
But all that is to say, if you believe in something and you have deep conviction for it and you know in your heart that it's valuable and that it's true, that um, I would just encourage you to, to, to fight for that vision and, 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 um, and go for it. That's uh, very powerful. Um, it's hard to do. Yeah. But it's 100% doable. It is so um, hard. But it's not easy. And let's remind the listeners of you working 70 hours a week loading trucks while thinking of this in the back of your head. And um, Yeah, and then afterward easy. working 90 hours a week, sometimes yeah. you know, 2, 3, 4 in the morning. Um, it is the hardest thing I have ever done. But I also have a lot more joy in my life. There's a lot more pain in my life, but there's also a lot more joy in my life. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like I am experiencing life truly as it was meant to be experienced, maybe for the first time, uh, because I am, I am experiencing all the highs and all the lows, and I'm no longer insulated inside of kind of the security blanket that I was in before. Well, you should be a motivational speaker. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I could start a cult. Uh <laughs> What do you think about those gurus, those yeah. Instagram guys that like <laughs> Gary V and all these people, you know, that, uh, um, I don't know. I don't take my class, my workshop, come, yeah, I don't, come I to don't Atlanta really. and spend 1500 bucks. No. Uh, w- when there's money involved, I get skeptical right away. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I also think, you know, I was just, um, I was just, uh, digging into the, the case of the, the guy who started, um, like the, the motivational, um, it was like a professional, um, he would like equip prof- young professionals and motivational. And he was like a motivational speaker. This is up in, in, uh, upstate New York, I want to say. And then it turned out that he was like, uh, trafficking women and that it was like a big cult. You know oh, what geez. I'm talking about? I don't know absolutely, this story. Absolutely but. horrifying. And I'm sorry, I can't remember any of the details right now, but, um, yeah, that's why I made the joke about the cult because yeah. I think that sometimes people can be very eloquent, but they can be doing it for insidious reasons, which I am not. Well, I want to. <laughs> okay, so I understand the allure of um, paying fifteen hundred bucks and going to Atlanta for the weekend. Yeah, because that's easy. Mm-hmm. I mean, fifteen hundred bucks is a lot of money, but it's easier. People are looking for shortcuts in life. I think mm-hmm. myself included, and. Um, it's it's like oh I can just go to this workshop and learn in three days how to be motivated or fill in the blank mm-hmm. and and you and you're a living example of how it actually works and that's less glamorous and less pretty and it's loading trucks and working ninety hours a week and here's what I think I think that those um, those kind of speakers are good at inciting people to action and encouraging you to do something and making you feel inspired, but it doesn't, um, it won't sustain you. You have to have something in your life that consistently reminds you of truth. Um, that's why people who go to church on Sunday go every single Sunday because you forget and you need to be reminded, you know, every week. And so whether it's a loved one or a mentor or, or somebody, you know, you may feel some encouragement. You may have, you know, find some new truth and insight by going to one of these talks or watching a Gary V video. But discipline 
is incredibly important and I, and, and it's not something any of us naturally have. So you have to f- make sure that you have like the resources, the structure, the people in your life that will continue to like reinforce those convictions over and over and over. Um, otherwise, it's just meaningless. Otherwise, it's just inspiration, empty inspiration. I've, I've heard it been said discipline is a muscle and you must exercise it for mm-hmm. it to work. Um, where do you get your discipline from? It's very difficult to have discipline. When and I, I feel like an, I, I, f- I feel like I would be an imposter answering this question because uh, deep down I feel like I'm not disciplined, but then I know that I've also accomplished a lot compared to a lot of other people. Um, I think that it probably varies for everyone, and for me, it was it, I have been given just kind of this impetuous drive to pursue my passion. Um, there's a musical by Stephen Sondheim called Sunday in the Park with George, which is about the famous painter George Matisse, who, you know, you'd recognize his, it's an impressionist painting um, of people like standing on the riverbank uh, with like parasols and stuff on the, um, uh, on, on the riverside. And, uh, and watching that uh, or listening to um, that, the, the songs from that musical uh, very much resonate with me because I know what it's like to be almost insane in your pursuit of what you love. Um, and so what what makes me disciplined or what drives me could be very different from what makes a marathon runner disciplined. Maybe it's exactly the same. Maybe it's both just the passion that we feel for, for that thing. Um, Beyond that, I don't know. I guess I would just say, like, find find the thing that you are most passionate about. And if you're passionate about it, then, like, it's not hard to be disciplined. It's hard to be disciplined to do things that you don't really want to do in your heart of hearts. And I have a dear friend who I've had many conversations with about, like, you know, goal setting and things like that. And he said, I think that um, if you really want to do it deep down, you'll just do it. And at first I was like, no, you got to have goals. You got to have checklists. And I think you might've been right to a certain, to a certain extent that um, if you really want to write that book, then, then you will write that book and it might be helpful to set goals and stuff. But if you are resisting that, you know, whatever that thing is for any reason, then you will find excuses not to do it. So I think it really comes down to passion. Where do you think motivation comes from? I think I think it comes from uh, from love, really. I mean, it's just it's um, uh, you can be motivated to to do things for any number of reasons. It could be fear, it could be, but r- really, I think that all of us are just existing. We are trying to feel less lonely and 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 trying to experience love as a way of um, of kind of getting away from that separateness that we all feel and so no matter what is motivating you whether it's a desire to feel more connected with someone or it's out of fear of another person which is also it's a lack of love it's like an absence of love it's a it's a fear of disconnection um i think pretty much all motivation comes back to to that like crux it's very interesting Now I have some things to think about this afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) 
Man, I better close this record store down and, uh, and become a motivational speaker, I guess. Yeah, for sure. But you can't charge anything. <laughs> That's right. Well, Ben, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been a really enjoyable, special conversation for me. Well, thank you for having me on, Luke. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Um, I'm going to go let you clock in and make some real money now. <laughs> I'll try. Thanks right. a lot. Yep. All right. Bye. There you have it. Ben Vanderhart. I forgot to ask Ben about all his social media accounts, so check him out on Instagram at yellowracket underscore CHA or his website, www.yellowracket.com. Or even better, just go to his store. It's on East Main next to Charlie's Barbecue. By record. Thanks for listening. And if you like the podcast and want to support it, please leave a five star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And also tell your friends, as word of mouth is very helpful in this small city. Thanks for listening. Bye.